Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are honored to have with us Scott Linsencombe. Ron, how's it going? Great, Ed. I'm always thrilled when we have a Cato person on. They're just such wickedly smart people. I know. We get to learn so much from them and, and, and share it with our great audience. But let's let's get to it. I want to read him in here, brief uh, bio, and let's get talking about some of his great work. Scott Linsencombe is the director of general economics and Cato's Herbert I'm sorry, Herbert A. Steffel. Is that how you pr pronounce it, Scott? Steffel? Is that right? Steffel. Steffel. Steffel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, he writes on international and domestic and economic issues, including international trade, subsidies, and industrial policy, manufacturing, global supply change, and economic dynamism, one of our favorite topics. He is also a visiting lecturer at Duke University Law School, where he taught a course on international trade and previously taught international trade as a visiting lecturer with Duke. He is routinely featured on TV, radio, and print media. And we are going to today talk with him mostly about his recently published, or it goes back to, I guess, April of 2022, the updated case for free trade, which is not only fun to read, but if you look at it on a, t a device, a handheld device, especially a, a, an iPad, it is beautiful to just experience. It's really well, uh, well put together from an experience standpoint. Scott, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, as I said, we're going to talk about uh, uh, trade policy, at least at the beginning, and maybe we'll talk about some other things. But the case for really uh, free trade really boils down to um, a couple different things, the, the economic part, portion of it, the, the moral case for it. Um, and it really comes down to this, to the economic piece especially. Governments don't trade. People do. <laughs> talk right. a little bit about right. that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably the number one fallacy when it comes to trade policy. Um, because when you listen to tr people talk about trade in the press, when they rarely do talk about trade, uh, when you especially when you hear politicians talk about it, it is the United States is trading with China or Japan or the European Union. Um, and never is that, uh, well, rarely is that the reality. Certainly, you know, you have some defense contracting, you have state-owned enterprises, for the most part, uh, trade is really um, just voluntary cross-border transactions among individuals. I would like to buy a television. Uh, someone in Japan or Korea makes a television. I'm buying from, from that person, right? And of course, there are middlemen, corporations. There's Amazon, usually, at least in my household. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, you're talking about an, you know, an individual on one and an individual on the other. And we never speak of it that way. Um, and when we when we um, obfuscate that essential fact, um, we really tend to start thinking about trade less in those personal terms and more in about things like national security or the trade balance and all these things. But they real those things really uh, ignore again that at the end of the, at, at its very base basics, uh, 
trade is uh, two people wanting to do business with each other for their own mutual benefit. I will gain more by buying that TV um, and the producer will gain more by selling it to me at, at that price. Um, and you know, that when you, once you think about it that way, um, it's essential, I think that gets to the second point that protectionism uh, is really not about uh, the United States writ large, China writ large. It is really about denying our neighbors, our fellow consumers, or even ourselves, um, the ability to uh, trade freely with other individuals simply because there's a political border, there's a national border involved. So we are enlisting the government to stop our neighbors from engaging in those mutually beneficial transactions. Uh, it gets even worse, however, when we're doing that to enrich ourselves, right? Uh, steel workers tell the government to put tariffs on steel so that they can have uh, higher paying jobs. They can have a domestic market all to themselves. They can force American consumers, you and me, to pay more for things made of steel. To, they can force American workers in industries that use steel to uh, have lower wages or fewer jobs um, uh, so that they can enrich, enrich themselves. Um, and that's, you know, when you're putting government in between uh, two private individuals, that, of course, raises all sorts of economic, moral, political problems and the rest. Yes. In, in a sense, thank God there's nobody in Washington d tallying up how many TVs should we order this year. That would be terrible. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny, though. These days, I think conservatives in particular have have lost sight of this of the, the this fundamental reality of trade. And, you know, the, when I talk about this, I say, you know, conservatives, Republicans still recoil at the idea of, say, putting government between an individual and his doctor. Um, but all of a sudden, uh, they are far more amenable to putting government in between an individual and his retailer, wholesaler, you know, whatever, the, the guy on the other end. Um, even though the potential, again, economic problems, political problems with rent seeking and corruption and all of that are very much the same. I mean, then, of course, again, the economic problems about inefficiency and distortions and unintended consequences, all those things conservatives get. But when you start talking about trade, particularly when you start talking about China, people, the, the, the kind of the brain shuts off a bit. You know, it gets uh, to a totally different calculus. So uh, in your article, you, you mentioned a comparative advantage, which is, uh, I believe, David Ricardo concept. And he, you know, it, this is a, with 1700s or something. W briefly tell us, our audience, what it is and why is it still important today? Well, so comparative advantage is a, a it's counterintuitive. And I think that's what makes it so difficult to explain and understand. Um, but the basic idea is that in any sort of trading relationship between two parties or more, um, the, the parties gain more by cooperating, by focusing on what they do best, and then by trading for the other thing um, in all circumstances. That uh, even in a situation where I might have an absolute advantage um, over you, let's say I actually am better at both making uh, lumber and t-shirts um, compared to advantage teaches us that it is actually better for instead of me to just make lumber and t-shirts 
that because resources are finite, labor is finite. It is actually better for me to focus on whichever of those I do, I do better. So let's say I'm better at making lumber. I have, we have, a, I have a lot of trees around some, you know, uh, a big burly family that can uh, chop, chop them down and saw them up. Um, so it is actually better for me to focus on that because I can produce more of that per hour per day. And then to let you focus on making t-shirts. And even though you might make fewer than if I did it, it's we actually are both better off at the end of the day, that we will be wealthier, we will be richer, if we focus on what we do best and then trade for the rest. Now that, again, it's very counterintuitive. You think, oh, we should just make everything ourselves. We're very good at making t-shirts or whatever. Um, but the reality is, um, even in the real world, you know, comparative advantage gets gets bad mouthed a lot. That oh, it doesn't work in the real world. No, it, it works quite quite well in the real world, and we actually see it all the time in reality. You know, the United States, for example, still makes a lot of stuff. We're the second largest manufacturing nation in the world. We just don't have a comparative advantage in making very low value labor intensive goods, uh, textiles and T-shirts, for example. Uh, certain types of low-end manufacturers, certain types of furniture, leather goods, footwear, um, those things really uh, are better left to other countries, in other individuals in those countries. Um, and then we will focus on higher end stuff. The United States makes a lot of aerospace and transportation equipment. We make a lot of weapons systems and satellites and all that kind of jazz. Um, and so we focus on that and then we trade for the lower value stuff. Um, that makes us wealthier. Um, we can afford more t-shirts um, and uh, it allows that other, the people in the other country to uh, be wealthier as well. They uh, can kind of move up the economic development ladder over time. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the geopolitical case and you know free trade making us more secure, but let's ca couch it in terms of uh, buying technology from China. How is it that if we buy technology from China that might have stuff in it that is spying on us, how does that free trade make us more secure? <laughs> So uh, certainly there are there the one area. So I think I think there are very few, if any, legitimate economic justifications for protectionism. By contrast, um, free traders have always, going back to Adam Smith, Milton Friedman, me. I would never put myself in that category, but you know I'm just updating you to today. Um, we can all acknowledge that there is a national security justification for protectionism. Uh, we do not want to outsource our nuclear weapons technology to the Chinese. Um, there may very well be uh, legitimate security reasons to, with res to restrict certain exports of, again, say, defense-related technologies. There are legitimate reasons to restrict uh, imports that, again, could have um, potential problems in terms of spying or something that, again, could undermine national security. In general, however, and that's the point. The general rule should be one, the geopolitical rule should be one of, of relatively free trade. And there are a couple reasons for that. Uh, the first is that there's a, a long history and a lot of economic analysis to support it that shows that trade nations that trade together tend not to go to war with each other. So as trade integration increases, armed conflict decreases. So since the primary goal of national security is to not have wars, 
um, not have invasions. Uh, there's a ton of economics literature that basically says, look, um, the more that countries trade together, the less likely they are to go to war. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, one is uh, you don't want to kill off all your customers, most basically. Uh, beyond that, though, there's all sorts of cultural recognition issues. Um, there is uh, kind of mutually assured destruction issues. Uh, you destroy um, your own market uh, if you're importing a lot and, and then you suddenly cut that off. Um, there are issues related to territorial expansion. You know, in the olden days, the way that you got more resources was you invaded another country and you just took the resources. Trade, you don't have to do that. You just trade. Right. And so a lot of a lot of those kind of traditional reasons for warfare are in armed conflict have, have gone away. Um, so when you when you put it all together, um, uh, I'd add another one, actually, and that is that um, countries that tend to border unstable regions, um, you actually they benefit by enriching those unstable regions. It actually foments stability. So you have less chance of uh, mass migration, instability, invasion as well. Um, and that that, again, bolsters your, your security case. So. Um, even today, you know, there's so much talk about trade and security and the rest. Uh, in terms of basic general geopolitics and as a general rule, uh, it's better to trade with each other than it is to, to not. Well, Scott, this has been great. We're already get up against our first break. want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as preview to upcoming shows. We do have our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash tsoe, where you can hear the show commercial-free as well as our bonus episodes that we record after the regular show each week. That Patreon channel is sponsored by Earmark. You can get a shout-out at a certain level, like Blake Oliver did from Earmark's cpe.com now a word from our sponsor melio an accounts payable solution that gives both and you that both you and your clients will love go to melio.com slash tsoe to get started for free be sure to friend us on facebook you can do it right now visit facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for us at keyword voice america Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit melio.com accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Cato Institute's Director of Economics and Trade Policy Studies, Scott Lincecombe. And Scott, I echo what Ed said. I, this paper, I loved it. It was a brilliant read. Um, I want to ask you about the history of protectionism and free trade. It seems like if you go back in history, the, the parties have flip-flopped on this back and forth, back and forth. And I can remember, I grew up in the 80s, cast my first vote for Reagan, I can remember being pissed off at the quotas that he yeah. landed on Japanese automobiles. That that bugged me. What the heck happened around 2016 that the right, the conservatives, went for protectionism? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I, I wrote, I'll give a big plug here. I actually wrote a paper on the history of American protectionism uh, a few years ago. So for those listening, you want to, you know, you can Google around very easily. It's called Doomed to Repeat It, uh, uh, the Long History of American Protectionist Failures. Um, maybe messed up a word in there, but it's close enough. Uh, Great, so, we'll find it. <laughs> um, if, you, if you look back, like you said, at the history of protectionism in the United States, um, you see that uh, like you said, it has a long history, not only of being in use, contrary to the idea that, you know, we were a nation of free market fundamentalism up until a couple of years ago, um, but that the parties continuously flip-flop on who's the more protectionist. Um, now, right now, we're in a bit of a unique spot in that both parties are very protectionist. Um, and that, I think, you know, first starting with, I would say that really the Reagan era is where Republicans started to become free traders. Uh, because if you look at the Reagan era, Reagan was protectionist on discrete issues, uh, mm -hmm. motorcycles for to protect Harley Davidson, uh, automotive quotas. Um, but Reagan was operating in a pre-WTO system. So back then we had just mm -hmm. a thing called the GATT. There was no real way to litigate disputes. The GATT was kind of like our Articles of Confederation, for those of you who are history buffs out there. Kind of this loose agreement where countries could or couldn't abide. So Reagan was more forceful uh, on, on protectionism in part because there was no WTO dispute settlement system. But what Reagan was doing 
in the background of all of that was actually negotiating the WTO agreement. So Reagan was the driver, the Reagan administration was the driver of what became the WTO in the 90s. Uh, Reagan was also the driver of the NAFTA agreement, you know, starting out with Canada mm -hmm. and then um, adding Mexico later. So Republicans right around the late 80s, 90s, uh, kind of became the party of, of free trade, uh, particularly in the 90s and 2000s. Um, whereas Democrats, um, during the 80s flipped. They were very much a pro, they went from the Kennedy years. Kennedy was a big free trader. Ken the Kennedy round of the GATT was all about tariff liberalization, believe it or not. Um, and if you look back at some of Kennedy's speeches, you'd be astounded at how forward-looking they were and how they were uh, about adjustment and consumer gains and export markets, all this kind of trade stuff, right? Um, so, but Democrats became very much um, in line with organized labor. Organized labor at this time in the 80s and 90s became very anti-trade for really base competitiveness reasons, right? They didn't want to compete against uh, lower wage labor or simply more competitive, more productive industries like say Japan, Japanese automobiles. Um, and so those, those two positions calcified for a long time. And then came Donald Trump in 2016. And the Trump years really changed things a lot. Uh, now, I would say that in the throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, uh, a part of the Republican Party uh, remained protectionist. Pat Buchanan, Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, these are parts of the kind of conservative base that remained very much economic nationalist, nativist, and the rest. Um, but in the in the late 2000s, you also had the China, China's accession to the World Trade Organization, the China shock, we call it, a lot of Chinese imports coming in the United States. You combine those uh, economic trends with the partisan trends, which again is Trump, uh, and a vocal opposition to trade, a, uh, a discussion of trade only in terms of its costs and its disruptions, a view of the trade balance as some sort of scorecard. Um, and Republicans uh, have uh, changed course. Now, this uh, unfortunately confirmed one of my views uh, that for a long time that people don't care much about trade policy. Voters don't. As much as it pains me to say voters don't vote on trade, we don't feel it every day. It has very concentrated benefits and um, or protectionism has concentrated benefits and diffuse uh, costs. Free trade, the opposite, diffuse benefits and concentrated costs. So, um, People tend to take their cues from their partisan leaders. And mm -hmm. Trump being the leader of the party uh, had a dramatic influence on base Republican voters' views on tariffs and trade agreements and the rest. Um, and in fact, it's quite startling when you look at public opinion polls of Republicans in 2015 and 2016, suddenly their support for NAFTA collapses. It goes from above 50% to well under 50%. But amazingly, it goes right back up to 50, 60 plus percent when Trump takes over because now their guy is in office and they think trade agreements are going to be fine again because their guy is negotiating them. On tariffs, of course, Trump implemented a bunch of tariffs and suddenly Republicans think tariffs are okay, uh, forgetting their Milton Friedman, forgetting their Econ 101 and all of that kind of stuff. Um, suddenly, tariffs are, are a useful tool of economic and, and geopolitical and geopolitics right yeah. and uh that that again i think is is just reflects that top-down influence
and they're sold as surgical. You know, the tariffs are going to be surgical, right? Right. Um, yeah, you know, you and, and the frustrating thing is, again, you know, go back to like 2016. If you want to, if you want to depress yourself, read my Twitter feed from that, and and you'll see that I'm saying, look, it's not going to change the trade balance. It's not going to fix the Rust Belt job situation. It's not. These are not. Um, some sort of magical cure-all. They have all sorts of political problems. You know, they breed corruption and cronyism. You know, some of the earliest instances of American corruption, if you look back in the history books, was in tariff policy. And here we are again with all this, you know, nasty K Street stuff that goes on now with these steel tariffs, China tariffs, and the rest. So, you know, unfortunately, most of our predictions came true. Uh, you know, there hasn't been any grand resolution of the China problem. Uh, the economic costs are significant. The the gains are minimal. Uh, the United States steel industry is not um, lean, mean, global fighting machine. Uh, it is is actually they're now angling for even more tariffs now. They want them on environmental grounds. Um, and so you know the idea that this was going to somehow fix economic policy or geopolitics was always nonsense. Uh, and of course our trade deficit got bigger. I should note. So uh, we knew this, but uh, you know we're unfortunately relearning those lessons. Um, and even more unfortunate, I think, is that because trade policy isn't a litmus test issue for most voters, because of the strong partisanship, you know, on both sides of the aisle these days, um, there's not a lot of room to convince. There's only a small group of persuadables right now, unfortunately. You know, um, even people who know that the tariffs stink, for example, uh, and they will tell me that behind closed doors, say, ah, but you know, I I care a lot more about other issues, whether it's school choice or whatever you name it. And I get it, but uh, that doesn't change the fact that it's still bad policy. Couldn't agree more. I, you know, t two other uh, points that you make are actually a lot more than that. But in the economic case that you have in your paper, you talk about you know almost forty-one million jobs being uh, dedicated to trade, which is about six percent of the U.S. firms, but they're about half the economy. The other two things, Scott, is it, it wouldn't be possible, would it, to reduce bone-crushing poverty as we have over the last decade and a half or so, and also. I think of antitrust, how great free trade is for, as a replacement for antitrust right. because the oligopoly of the big three automakers, for example. So those those three reasons alone, not to mention the consumer benefits, are enormous benefits for right. countries. Yeah. You know, people tend not to know. People think everything we import is just like iPhones and T-shirts, but it turns out that more than half give or take of everything we import, our capital goods, equipment, and other things that manufacturers use to make other stuff. And that's going to support a lot of jobs. And then even the retail stuff supports tons of jobs here in the United States, whether it's R&D and marketing at Apple or Etsy moms at home uh, selling certain goods. Um, these are all uh, important jobs. And then, like you said, research shows, if you're worried about corporate concentration, research shows that uh, trade, a uh, liberalized trading environment actually undermines corporate power. Uh, you know, the steel industry is so powerful in the United States and steel prices are so high because the steel industry has almost no international competition. They walled it all off. Um, so like you said, there are all these other reasons to support trade. And I think the global poverty one is just massive, right? And you're talking about billions of human beings who have escaped uh, abject poverty and uh, starvation, sex work, you name it, all sorts of terrible things. And certainly things aren't perfect. 
but they're a heck of a lot better today because of an open trading environment and because the United States has been uh, has low trade barriers and has been willing to purchase from the developing world. You know, I'm I'm just old enough to remember when you got a toy at Christmas or something, you'd turn it over. And if it said made in Japan, you, you knew it was, you know, kind of a piece of crap. And now here I am 50 years later in line to spend 24,000 times that much on a car that I'm dying to get my hands on. I mean, that can't be measured, but th that's enormous to happen in less than one lifetime for Japan. Oh, yeah. For sure. And and that gets to kind of the unseen benefits of trade. The ones that you can't really measure um, in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, just the overall benefit of having a diverse suppliers and having a dynamic global economy. Um, those things are not really, there's no real great metric for any of that. But like you said, uh, in just a generation, you see it across the globe and, and here in the United States as well. Um, and, and of course, we, we, we ignore almost all of it, unfortunately. Wow. Well, Scott, this has been great. Ed's going to uh, take you on to the next segment. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at parasage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds meld at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And we are back on the Soul of Enterprise with the author of the updated case for free trade at the Cato Institute, Scott Lincecum, who's also the Director of General Economics and Trade Policy. And Scott, wanted to just follow up. Uh, we talked a little bit about China the last time, and you mentioned that, yes, there could be a case from a security standpoint that we won't, don't want trade. Is there a case to be made that we should restrict trade with China due to what's happening in with the Uyghurs, for example, as well? Right. So... Um... That's, I think, another, you know, I said there were uh, exceptions to trade. I, I should have mentioned um, uh, there is, of course, uh, another exception which relates to slave labor. Um, the reason I didn't include that is that slave labor is not really trade. That is not a voluntary, mutually beneficial exchange. Uh, only one side of that transaction is uh, voluntarily participating, right? So, um, the, the, I think though the, the things we need to keep in mind when we talk about China and Xinjiang, um, first of all, obviously horrible. Let's, let's, start, let's start there. Um, but the first thing is that U.S. law already restricts trade um, on the grounds of slave labor. Uh, it is a perfectly acceptable thing under the WTO agreements, which you know people again accuse of being this free trade fundamentalist organization. No, no, no. Forced labor, slave labor, totally fine to restrict trade on those grounds. And U.S. law does that. U.S. law was just updated to bolster that even further. And you can search the Cato website. You're not going to find any of us saying that this is a major problem. Uh, the problems arise, however, when uh, you go from restricting goods that are that have a clear or direct connection to Xinjiang, the Uyghur situation, the rest, to just all imports, right? And and that's, I think, where the problems arise. Um, because, of course, we can restrict trade, uh, we can restrict imports that have that connection. But uh, from there, beyond that, you're not really actually, uh, you're not actually disciplining slave labor at all, you're simply implementing protectionism or, or the rest. Um, and so that's, I think, you know, you have to keep that in mind. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that these rules are frequently abused by protectionists that have very little interest in human rights and are simply looking for protectionism. Um, in my old job as a lawyer, uh, we dealt with all the time allegations by domestic industries of forced labor that were utter, not, not in China, by the way, um, utterly bogus. And they were done solely to restrict trade. They were not done to, to actually help uh, people abroad. Um, and then the final thing to note, and I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago, um, is that uh, we really need to be careful about our definitions of forced labor, because there are a lot of conditions out there that might uh, meet a, a very broad definition of forced labor, but actually is not actually forced labor in any way, shape, or form. Um, and instead is just simply a very normal developing country uh, labor model or whatever. And uh, if you restrict trade to, with those individuals and with those countries, you what do you end up doing? You actually end up preventing their economic development, right? And if you prevent their economic development, you're all but ensuring that those terrible conditions uh, stay terrible. Um, and so for those reasons, you know, again, you, you, we, we need to uh, police slave labor perfectly fine, but we also need to be really skeptical about these broad suggestions of blocking all trade, because at the end of the day, 
you might actually make things worse for the people you're trying to help. Well, I'm going to turn our attention to something a little bit different for a second. And um, it, it's been said that, that, that tariffs are the equivalent of spray painting your own house because your neighbor is spray painting theirs. <laughs> so, But I want to talk about something that I think is taking basically a shotgun and shooting yourself off at the knees all the way down. And that is to ask you this question, and I know you know the answer. Why is it with the U.S. being the largest exporter of liquid natural gas, does Puerto Rico buy it from Trinidad? <laughs> oh, well, that's a, that's a T-ball. That's a softball. I love it. Um, there is a, a little thing called the Jones Act. Everybody. Oh, tell me more, Scott. <laughs> well, so let's start again. Remember, um, if you are to listen to certain parts of the right, we live in a free trade fundamentalist paradise. We have no tariffs. We have no trade restrictions. Uh, and prote real protectionism has never been tried. Okay, that's our, right, that's yeah. total nonsense. And the Jones Act is, I think, one of the, the best examples. The Jones Act is a law that's been around for more than 100 years uh, that essentially requires that any goods transiting between two U.S. ports, so let's say you want to ship oranges from Jacksonville to Boston, uh, that has to be on a ship that is made in the United States, that is crewed by Americans, that is owned by Americans, and that is flagged under the United States flag. So as a result of this protectionism, uh, it now costs around five times as much to build a ship in the United States as it does abroad. Uh, the Jones Act has, as you can imagine, when ships are that expensive, Nobody uses them. Uh, as a result, the U.S. Merchant Marine has declined from around 250 ships a couple decades ago to around 90 ships today. Um, and a law that is supposedly on national security grounds has so degraded our sea lift capabilities that during the Gulf War, we actually had to get foreign ships to uh, provide sea lift uh, assistance. Uh, you know, bringing goods and troops and whatever um, on shore in the Middle East. We even asked the old Soviet Union for help. Uh, they, I think they turned us down. They probably were laughing in the background. And, you know, when the communists are laughing at your trade policy, you know, you have a serious problem. Um, so, okay, so that's our premise, right? Jones Act, everything's very expensive. We have a, a, a runt of a shipping industry. Um, and... That gets to LNG, right? So Puerto Rico, the Jones Act hurts Puerto Rico, Alaska, and Hawaii the most. It hurts us all in all sorts of ways. But the ones that hurts the most, of course, are the ones that don't have any roads or, or rail connecting them to the United States. And that includes uh, those places. So Puerto Rico has to import LNG from foreign countries, Trinidad and Tobago, so Russia, you name it. Uh, and that's simply because there are no actual Jones Act compliant LNG ships. Uh, now, why is that? Well, because LNG ships are technologically sophisticated. They are very big and they're very expensive. You can imagine when you take something like that and then you multiply its cost by five times, nobody's going to build them. We have absolutely zero uh, big LNG ships that are Jones Act compliant. So Puerto Rico is forced to uh, buy gas from other countries, even though, of course, it's a United States uh, territory. It is 
very close to the United States. Um, and to top it all off, uh, imported natural gas in Puerto Rico actually has to pay a small fee that domestic natural gas uh, doesn't uh, pay. And so it's like insult to injury to the, to the Puerto Ricans. Um, but, you know, I should say it's not just Puerto Rico. Um, you know, refined petroleum products for years uh, have been purchased by uh, uh, companies in the Northeast, um, not again from Houston, uh, not from the one of the largest petroleum producing countries on the planet. We have all these amazing refineries in the Gulf Coast. No, we buy it again from Russia. We buy it from uh, the Middle East and the rest. And we do that simply because the Jones Act makes shipping those products cost prohibitive. Um, in a time when energy prices are through the roof, or at least they were until recently, um, it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, a recent study said that the Jones Act adds about 10 cents a gallon to gasoline in the Northeast. Um, when we almost had a rail strike the, uh, this week, um, well, we would have been nice if we had some ships to maybe take the place of some rail. Well, we have no domestic maritime shipping industry, again, because of the Jones Act. Uh, if you're ever stuck on I-95 in traffic surrounded by 18 wheelers, again, you can thank the Jones Act. Because I mentioned, you know, shipping oranges from Jacksonville to Boston, I-95, not going to be using a ship, even though ships are more environmentally friendly, more efficient, and more cost efficient outside of the United States. So that's, I think, a fantastic example of real protectionism and just how it not only raises consumer costs, but also eventually leads to the degradation of the protected industries themselves. And oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, the reason the law sticks around is because of all the cronyism. Uh, the Jones Act lobby is very, very powerful. They are very, they're not very good at making ships. They're very good at lobbying. Uh, and uh, that's what they do. And so, um, good luck getting that law uh, dislodged. I, I was that you anticipated my next question, which is: is is this just a similar to the sugar subsidies? Is it just concentrated benefits, diffuse costs? Is that is that really what's going on here? Pretty much, with a little bit of a hint of national security. Now, Marco Rubio did once claim that sugar was a national security issue, but uh, more legitimately, the Jones Act has a nexus, right? Because of, we think of the Navy and the rest. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that uh, naval vessels and uh, military shipbuilding are actually quite different from commercial shipbuilding. It's a two very different processes. Um, but yeah, go, it, it really goes back to um, the, in, the domestic shipbuilding industry, the maritime unions and the rest, uh, they benefit handsomely from the Jones Act and they fight like heck to keep it. And that's, I think, a really valuable lesson and why we, why we should be very skeptical about protectionism generally. Because once you implement this stuff, boy, is it hard to dislodge. Because let's face it, nobody's paying attention to this stuff outside of the folks that benefit so handsomely from it. That's public choice 101, right? Um, the only people paying attention are the people that are getting rich off the, the law. Well, we've got about a minute in this segment. It's, it's got to be, though, that, that some of these other special interests, don't don't they counterbalance these guys? I mean, you would just think at some point they would overwhelm them. Yes and no. So the, the biggest counterbalance is going to be the U.S. energy petroleum industry. So big oil, right? But big oil has a lot of other policy priorities. They are fighting a multi-front war uh, against all sorts of potential new taxes and regulations and the rest. They also have to deal with international issues. The Jones Act lobby has one issue. And because of that, they can, if there's even a, 
emergency waiver request when say colonial pipeline went down when there was that massive hurricane that hit puerto rico they will mobilize hundreds of workers to show up at congressional offices to oppose even an emergency waiver. Uh, they work hard also to actually make the law worse. Just a few years ago, we actually tightened the Jones Act to make it even harder to waive. Uh, and now we're gonna apply it to offshore wind facilities to of course increase the price of offshore wind uh, production, which of course is an idiotic thing to do from an environmental perspective. But I mean, look, that's what protectionism does. It's not exactly the smartest policy, but it's quite, you know, uh, it's good at, at making a few people rich. Hmm. Maybe I misspoke. It's not shooting ourselves at the knees. It's maybe at the waist. That's, but we're up against our last break. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe. Ver I'm sorry, the website is uh, thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. This segment is sponsored by my employer, Sage, so we'd like to hear from them. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Scott Lincecombe from Cato. And Scott, just, you know, we had the uh, Jones Act on our bingo card now just so people could have a chance to get bingo. I've got to ask you about the Foreign Dredge Act. This is another colossally stupid piece of legislation, isn't it? 
So it's basically an extension of the Jones Act. Um, it, it, it requires that any dredging in the United States be done by an American-owned, flagged, a, a Jones Act ship, right? So uh, this is, uh, in normal times, uh, the Dredge Act is annoying and a mess because it limits, as usual, the number of dredging ships that we, we have. It is particularly idiotic, though, in the last couple of years, because as we've had ports crises here in the United States, supply chain problems, our ports have containers overflowing and whatever. Well, it turns out one of the reasons why our ports are so inefficient, there are several, is because they're not dredged to the, the biggest, the deepest depth, right? So bigger vessels allow for more efficient uh, onloading and offloading of containers. Um, and one of the reasons why our ports aren't dredged is because of the dredge act, because it makes it very expensive and, and even perhaps more importantly, very slow. Uh, you just have to get in the line for the one of a dozen or two uh, available dredges in the entire country. You know, we have hundreds of commercial ports dozen or so massive commercial ports. Um, and if you want to actually expand them, if you want to, uh, in Houston, they were actually having to uh, run ships single file for a while because they couldn't fit two ships uh, in the channel at the same time. That dredging project finally got done, cost a fortune. Uh, so yeah, the Dredge Act does, um, it basically does all the same stuff as the Jones Act, but just for, for dredging in particular. Dredging. I know you're, yeah, I think your Cato colleague wrote about it and was saying how- Colin grabbed out, does great it, stuff on it. Right, yeah, how Bloomberg found out about it and did a podcast episode on it or something. And Scott, I know you know about this. I forget the term, but is it the Free Skies uh, Treaty or Open Skies? that disallows uh, a foreign airline carrier from flying domestically here in the U.S.? Isn't it kind of the same thing? Very much so. We call all of this stuff uh, cabotage or cabotage. It's uh, C-A-B-A-O-T-A-G-E. So all of these restrictions do essentially the same thing. They require uh, domestic-made uh ships, planes, or whatever, trucks um, for domestic shipping. Now, the only good news for airlines is that they lack um, the crew requirements. So they're a little bit looser than the Jones Act. The Jones Act is really the tightest of all of them. But you know, one of the reasons why we don't have some of those awesome low cost European airlines in the United States is because of these restrictions. So this is a, another big issue right now because not only are we having flight delays everywhere, but regional uh, routes are being uh, terminated right and left. Airlines are really just sticking to this big hub and spoke model. We have just a couple big giant airlines, a few regional and low cost players and the rest. Well, uh, we can't have foreign, we, we're not allowed to have foreign competitors service the market. I mentioned the Europeans, but there are, of course, some great airlines out in Asia as well. Um, none of them can operate here um, if they want to service domestic routes. Now, why is this a problem? Well, if you look at Europe, for example, the Europeans did got rid of some of their cabotage restrictions a few years ago. And what happened? Well, not only did fares get lower, so you can actually fly in Europe for about half, give or take, as much as it costs in the United States for a comparable route. But not only did fares go down, competition's great at that, but it, it, it actually expanded the number of routes, expanded the, the total network. 
And so uh, the European network has uh, a lot more of these regional routes and has a lot more service to places um, that that otherwise would not be served by, say, Lufthansa or British Airways or some of those big guys. Well, in the United States, that's very much the, the situation we have now. Um, a lot of regional airports, particularly out west, are struggling to keep a single airline. Um, and uh, like I said, large carriers are cutting routes. Um, and unfortunately, there's there's not much that uh, you know consumers, flyers can do about it because uh, we, competition is so limited. And then I, I listened to a podcast, I think it was last month on NPR, and they were calling for bring back cab. These airlines are too concentrated, blah, and, and they never mention this stuff. No, never. And and it's it's really frustrating because you that we actually have uh, regional airline laws in place that effectively subsidize these routes and, in fact, can even force carriers to service mm-hmm. some regional airports out west. So instead of just letting the market work, opening it up to foreign competition, uh, we're doing all this kind of top-down regulation and, and planning um, to try to solve the very problem that our own laws have created. I, I know you've written about this as well. I have to ask you about it because, you know, with the fear of China making a move on Taiwan and Taiwan being responsible for such a large percentage of our specialized chips, yeah. what's your take on the CHIP Act? The CHIP Act? I think it's about uh, 15 times too big. I'll put it that way. Uh, the fact is that I think there's a legitimate argument to be made that we, uh, the United States government, could spend a few billion dollars on bleeding edge R&D, national security related production and the rest. The problem is that the CHIPS Act provides 80 plus billion dollars to anybody who's building any type of chip facility in the United States. Um, this includes a low end chips so things that go in automobiles that you know are just bulk commodity things um but also includes um chips uh, and facilities that were already planned to be uh, put in the United States. A couple of years ago, chip manufacturers realized, hey, we're a little top heavy in Asia, let's diversify, let's invest in the United States. They have workers, they have equipment. Um, And so they had committed about $80 billion to the US market and were essentially giving these companies that were just making record profits, by the way, uh, handouts to do what they're already were planning to do. Um, Now, the problem with that is not only are, you know, is it corporate welfare, but I think there's a really, big chance that we're going to be distorting the U.S. market, uh, potentially creating a glut of chips. And when you have Europe doing the same thing and Asia, Korea, Japan and others doing the same thing, well, what happens if you have a glut of chips, you not only have financially weak companies, but you have trade wars. It's exactly what happened in the 80s and 90s. We had all sorts of tariffs and other things in place on chips that hurt domestic computer industry in the United States that caused all sorts of geopolitical problems. And it appears we're heading right back down that road again, which of course uh, we'd, we'd prefer not to do. Scott, real quick, um, if we have a rail strike, that'll be a mess, won't it? Very much so. Um, you know, there are t- uh, billions of dollars per day 
that transit our rails. Um, and to the extent this shuts down, like I said, there's not going to be a good shipping alternative. Uh, at least if we could use trucks, but the truck capacity is pretty full and we don't have any maritime ships because of the Jones Act, right? Um, but I think that there's other another really big lesson here. And that is that we hear a lot these days about how closing ourselves off to foreign trade will somehow make us more resilient, will be uh, able to handle um, you know, shocks and whatever. But the rail shock would be purely domestic. Right. So shocks happen domestically, too. And that one would actually hurt our domestic supply chains um, far more than our international ones. Uh, and so it's all the best thing to do, as always, is diversify. We don't want our eggs all here. We don't want them all abroad. Um, and I think the rail strike is going to well, it might be another lesson in that regard. Brilliant point. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the Soul of Enterprise. Hang with us as we go through a live close. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, we are going to talk to Marion Tupi for the second time, talking about his new book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. So I look forward to that conversation as well. Me too. See you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.